0: So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance. But if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's
1: time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I have
0: rarely discovered a book that so delighted and galvanized me at once. The Moth Snowstorm, Nature and Joy is written by the English naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy. The sudden passionate happiness which the natural world can occasionally trigger in us, he writes, may well be the most serious business of all. We could stop relying on the immobilizing language of statistic and take up joy as a civilizational defense of nature with a perspective equally infused by science, reportage and poetry. He reminds us that the natural world is where we evolved, where we found our metaphors, and it is the resting place for our psyches.
1: There is a legacy deep within us, a legacy of instinct, a legacy of inherited feelings which may lie very deep in the tissues, it may lie underneath all the parts of civilization which we are so familiar with on a daily basis, but it has not gone. That we might have left the natural world, most of us, but the natural world has not left us.
0: I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Michael McCarthy was longtime environment editor of the U.K. newspaper The Independent. He was a driving force behind that paper's campaign to explain the disappearance of the urban house sparrow in London. He also orchestrated the great British butterfly hunt. This became intertwined with his mother's death, and her mental breakdown when he was a child had first led him to take solace and joy in birds and butterflies. I start most of my interviews with a question just wondering about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. I find that is a very fertile place in everybody's imagination, whatever their story is. It's full of questions and searching and softness. So however you would begin to think of that.
1: I would use a a curious phrase to describe what I am now. Mm -hmm. I would describe myself as an ethnic Catholic yeah okay <laughs> meaning that i grew up a roman catholic and i have abandoned the faith formally at, at any rate but the belief system or not necessarily the eschatology the belief in heaven and hell but the uh, the sense of right and wrong i think um, stays with you all your life and you relate to it mm-hmm. and so even though i'm not formally religious I suppose that I carry with me what some people might describe as a religious sensibility.
0: Yeah. And I feel like right at the beginning of your book, The Moss Snowstorm, Nature and Joy, you, I mean, this is a book about our bond with the natural world. That's and, right. Right. And, and that bond is both civilizational. It's at once civilizational and species, something about our species, but it's also personal. And, you know, you use the word soul in this way r- rather early. You you describe, you know, your mother's illness and she was away for a time, institutionalized. And one of the things that happened to you as a child is that you, you had a lack of feeling about that, uh, that you could perceive. But then you describe this day... And he said, when I was a skinny kid in short pants, butterflies entered my soul. <laughs> so would you just tell a little bit of that story as and why that is a vantage point for you on, again, this large civilizational issue?
1: Well, um, it was really just a personal way, a, a way through my own personal experience mm-hmm. of a, a beginning to explore the strange conundrum, which is what it seems to me, that we can actually – love very fiercely the natural world Uh, I say that you know everybody may have their own stories but this was simply mine it was the way in which at the age of seven in a time of uh, great trauma in my family I personally became attached to nature And this was a day uh, in August 1954, when my mother had gone away to hospital because she'd had a mental breakdown. and My brother, who was a year older than me, was completely mortified. He was terribly, terribly upset. And yet... uh, I felt nothing whatsoever, which, which took me 50 years and a certain amount of psychotherapy <laughs> right. to, to discover why. <laughs> right. And we went to my aunt's in a nearby suburb of the town where I grew up, which was greener than our house, which had been in the inner city. And there was a garden two doors away. And over the wall of this garden hung a budlier bush. And in those days when wildlife was far more numerous in the UK, as indeed all around the world, than it is now, on the first morning as I ran out into the road to play, this bush was just simply covered in butterflies. And it was very particularly very colourful ones, the most colourful of all the British butterflies. I mean, four of them in particular, the peacock, the red admiral, the small tortoiseshell and the... Uh, what's the other one? Um, Vanessa cardui. remember the <laughs> scientific name? And I was um, I was very taken by them. I, I was lost in contemplation of them. I thought they were remarkable and they... It was a time when I should have had terrible feelings, but I had no feelings. And the feelings for the butterflies filled this hole, as it were. And from that moment on, I began to love the natural world, albeit in fairly strange circumstances.
0: The framing that you give as you think about our collective encounter with this phenomenon and what it means for us in this moment in time is... um, taking a very long view of time, that, that there are 5,000 generations of us.
1: Just to be precise, um, I say fi- I say 500 generations of farming and 50,000 generations okay, sorry, of... Sorry, yeah, I missed... Yeah.
0: Right, 500 generations of what we call civilization and the yeah. 50,000 generations when we were part of nature. And your your argument is that, you know, that is where we evolved, where we became what we are, where we learned to feel and react, where the human imagination formed... Where we found our metaphors and similes, and you know, that's it's not an idea that I had ever heard expressed that way. But as you lay it out, it it kind of in the way you're talking about, it it makes sense in my body what you're describing, right? That that is still defining us.
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea is not mine, and it's it's not new. It's about forty years old. It's a perception that comes from evolutionary biology. I mean, that's the you know the neo-Darwinism of the late twentieth century. And a particular branch of that, which is evolutionary psychology, which has been going really since about the 80s. And the core perception of evolutionary psychology is that the 50,000 generations that preceded us in the Pleistocene, which is the age of the ice ages, when we became what we are as part of the natural world, when we were wildlife, if you like, (laughs) we don't think of ourselves as wildlife anymore, but we were wildlife then that those generations are more important for our psyches even now than the 500 generations of civilization which have followed the invention of farming about 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that there is a legacy deep within us, uh, a legacy of instinct, uh, a legacy of inherited feelings which may lie very deep in the tissues it may lie underneath all the parts of civilization which we are so familiar with right. on a daily basis but it has not gone that we might have left the natural world most of us but the natural world has not left us
0: the, you you describe really interesting i mean you, you've pursued this in many ways you describe interesting uh, conversations you've had with is it neil morris
1: of oh Nile Niall. you say Nile yeah, yeah, he's the guy who runs bird's career right. in, in South Korea, yeah,
0: yeah, and some of his observations about um the horizons we the human beings favor and and that there are dangers, as you say, then it's not all beauty um and softness, but that these are dangers our bodies can understand,
1: yeah, I mean, it's funny you should pick up on that reference, not many other people have, but mm-hmm. I did think it was very interesting yeah. uh Niall Moores is um a bird watcher, a birder. But what he specialises in is what we would call waders and what you guys call shorebirds. Mm. And he spent years and years and years looking at shorebirds and other birds and the way in which they move through landscapes. Uh, The principal uh, motivation of which is to see and not be seen. Mm. And what he gradually came to realise was that people still move through landscapes in this way. It's still deeply within us. For example, if you watch people go into a square... Very often, they will walk around the edges of it without even realising they're doing it rather than cross it, rather than going across the open middle where they are very visible. And there are numerous such ways in which what you were referring to then is that I do say that nature's not paradise. Right, if you right. think nature's paradise, you're mistaking it yeah. because nature has wonderful things, but it also has great dangers and nature can kill you. But the point I was making is that these are our dangers. These are the dangers that we we evolved to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Whereas much of modern life, um, from everything from central heating to automobiles to modern sewage disposal to air travel, that's not what we evolved to be at peace with. And so perhaps the, the only place where we can be truly. At peace is in the natural world.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy. You know, so here we are, At this moment, as you say, where we can, um, in this young century, and there are all the milestones we could summon and all the lists we could make of, of what the 20th century was about and the accomplishments of the late 20th century. But you say we may come to a different way of categorizing our time on Earth, that we were the generation who over the course of their lives saw the shadow fall across the face of the earth.
1: Yeah, I'm referring to the baby boomers there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, I'm I'm born in the same year as Elton John and David Bowie, uh, a bit younger than Paul McCartney. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But, I mean, the point I was making was that if our generation is characterised... Which characterised in many ways, isn't it? I mean, for yeah. example, that we've had a, a much better life than our children, yeah. which is often pointed out now. Um, but the baby boomers now, you know, we're all getting old. And, and when we look back on what that time was, the people who were born after the Second World War and came to adulthood in the late 60s and are now retiring, uh, one of the things that happened in, in our time was the world population doubled in our lifetime and the other was that the fabric of the earth began to be torn apart in a way that we have increasingly come to realize. We didn't first at first notice it. We thought this was, a, as Neville Chamberlain said, that somewhere like the Amazon was a faraway country of which we know nothing. And only specialists were, uh, were aware of what was happening. But now I think it's very hard not to realize that uh, all over the world, natural systems and species are being given a terrible time.
0: Yeah, and I think this point about the the dimensions of our advance, whereas we focus so much on the trajectory of advance of our, you know, we get more sophisticated and with our technology, our mastery, our inventiveness, and I think we focus a lot on the pace now, and and even people talk about population growth, but somehow for me the way you put this into context, that the dimensions, the runaway scale of the human enterprise. And that, as you say, like in the same period of this baby boomer generation, between your teenage years and your middle years, between 1960, the year I was born, and 2000, the world's population doubled. And the world economy grew more than six times bigger. Yeah. Right? And that the scale of the human enterprise is this defining thing that is also overwhelming this natural world, which is our life support system and home.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the points I would make about that is it. This is not just a point we've arrived at; it's a direction of travel. So you know, <laughs> the scale of the human enterprise is, is mammoth and gargantuan, but it's going to get very much bigger.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, your the the subtitle of your book, um, "The Moss Snowstorm," is nature and joy. And I don't want to call this an argument. I'm trying to think of a better word. Your thesis, but it's more more passionate than a thesis, is that even as we start to grapple with the dimensions of what's happening and as we start to rediscover the value of the natural world um, to our well-being and even survival, we turn instinctively to measuring value the ways we do. And having these kind of cerebral conversations about it, and, and I think these discussions about solutions, which also overwhelm people amidst all the other things that are overwhelming them. And your point is that, that we could be making a different formal defense of nature, and in fact that that's what we are called to do right now, is a, to defend nature. And you said we should offer up what it means to our spirits, the love of it. We should offer up its joy. And I want you to talk a little bit about your understanding. And joy is its something that's distinct from mere fun or happiness or pleasure, although it may contain all of those things.
1: Well, in fact, yeah, you're right. I mean, if we look at what is joy, I say it's an intense happiness. Yes, it is. But it, it's somehow one that is set apart. It's not the same as fun or even delight. We don't use it to define our pleasure uh, in eating um, a particularly well-made pizza. Um, but <laughs> right. but we, we might well think it was appropriate to describe the feelings of a parent finding uh, a missing child and finding them safe and well, or the feelings of a lover whose love for another person has long been unrequited but who at last finds it being returned. What I say is that joy looks outward to another person to mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. purpose. And, and I say that joy has a component, if not of morality, uh, then at least of seriousness. It, yeah. it sig- signifies a happiness, which is a serious business.
0: Yes. It, I, mean, that's a, I think that's a line of the book. The passionate happiness the natural world can trigger in us may be the most serious business of all. <laughs> um, and, and whereas I think oh, what's important about that, also in terms of what we're learning about our brains and bodies, is that while... It's statistics of decline and demise and the destruction of the natural world don 't mobilize action right they they in fact dampen us um, and though so joy can have a quality of seriousness and yet be animating
1: well that 's my hope, and that is my suggestion that, that there have been two attempts to try and stop this, and one was sustainable development, yeah. which is uh, trying to grow the economy in a green way. And that basically hasn't worked. And and the other one that is going on now is, is to realise the value of ecosystem services, i.e. to realise just exactly what nature can do for us. And if we destroy it, we're certainly damaging our own prospects. But uh, I take the view that that isn't sufficient either. And I suppose ultimately what this book was hoping to do was to mobilise in people the fact that the natural world, uh, we we, ha- we can sometimes have very peculiar feelings for the natural world in certain circumstances. It's not always common. By no means happens to everybody, but it is my contention that it's possible for it to happen to everybody. Right. And that if we could mobilise this sort of love we have for the natural world, and, and the essence of it is the fact that the natural world is a part of us, and that if we lose it, we cannot be fully who we are. And if we were to realize that, which is hard, and if we were to realize it on a large scale, which is even harder, that might offer a defense of nature at the time when we are trashing it remorselessly.
0: Mm-hmm. So your writing is infused with this joy, and I'd like for you to indulge in that a little bit, and let's, let's just demonstrate, you know, what, what that is. And just would you talk a little bit about... Um, The part of the world you grew up in and the natural world there that okay yeah. yeah i mean
1: i grew up in the northwest of england and what i tell which is the industrial part of britain for you know yeah. your, your listeners who won't know the uk i would used to tell people so where do you come from i would say i come from liverpool i come from the city of the Beatles, yeah. which is an, an, um, a victorian port really uh, and industrial city but it, it it was a port it was how did it it was a bit like baltimore i suppose something like that you yeah. know a, 19, a 19th century port and um it's on a river, and across the river on the other side is a peninsula which is called the Wirral. And it's the far river, which is called the Dee, which starts off in Wales. It's a very beautiful river. It starts in the Welsh mountains, and it flows into the Irish Sea. And it's very wild. Even now, even now, it's very wild. It's a massive, massive area of marshland, and then further down of sandbars and mudbanks as it actually reaches the Irish Sea. And that's where I got to know nature in a deeper way. And I do say in the book that you're very lucky if you can have a special place in your your early life. It's almost as lucky as coming from a happy family. And, um, And certainly the estuary of the River Dee, the Dee estuary was my special place when I was a teenager.
0: But, I have to say, reading you, I mean, again, to get at this joy in nature, you know, i um because I have been reading you while we were entering spring, again, you're you're very lyrical uh, and and powerful about just in the joy you take in this world's reawakening each year. Um, right? Just being attentive to that
1: well, that's I think that's right. I yeah. mean, I think there are a number of reasons why why the natural world can spark joy in us. Uh, And, yeah, it can often happen suddenly. And you you don't quite realise what you're feeling when you're suddenly taken over with this very strong emotion in certain circumstances. It can be in a sunset, it can be in in, in the presence of a landscape, but it's certainly the case that the reawakening of the world every spring is something that stirs very, very profound emotions in us. The fact that our lives are um, linear, they only go in one direction. But the life of the earth is circular. Mm. It goes round and everything dies in the autumn and the leaves fall off the trees and the world seems to come to an end and it's locked up in ice. But then it it's reborn and that's one of the greatest things in our lives, surely. That rebirth of the earth. I think you have to be a a very, very concrete hearted person. <laughs> not not to not uh-huh. to I mean I yeah. mean, you yeah. know I think the cherry trees in Washington are flowering yeah, right. just just about now. You have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by that, surely. And it's not just the physical beauty, which is enormous. It's the sense of new life to, to us who only have one life, uh, especially as we get older and we know that the end of it is coming. <laughs> mm. The fact that here is new life being born. I have a friend who's a, a woodland scientist and he said to, he's in his early 70s. And he said to me uh, last year, I just see life now as how many springs I've got left. Hmm. Um,
0: hmm. you say somewhere for some years I have thought of spring bird song as blossom in sound <laughs> yeah
1: yeah I did think I did yeah. think that yeah uh, well I mean when I first thought that I mean my family and I um, spent Easter on uh, the Isle of Skye in Scotland and um, I don't know if you or your listeners know the Scottish islands but they're very beautiful but it's quite a harsh beauty it's yeah. quite a tough beauty yeah, you know it's, it's not beauty. the uh, it's not the Greek islands you Yeah. know uh, it's not the Florida Keys but when i first went to skye it was in the early spring and spring was coming and the the birch trees were all in flower that's like the olive trees in greece but there was this particular small bird which is, in britain is called a willow warbler and and when it sings it's not sensational but it's very nice and it's a sort of silvery descending cascade. It sort of goes, sip, 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 and and on sky and the moorlands and the the birches. It's a sort of harsh landscape, but these softened it somehow. The birdsong softened the harshness of the landscape, and it softened it as much as blossom would have done. And that's when I first started to thing that birdsong in spring, birdsong could be thought of as blossom in sound.
0: Mm -hmm. I hope that's not
1: uh, uh, too uh, poetic with a capital P. It's
0: wonderful. No, it is poetic. We'll take it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a a line of poetry, definitely.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm saying that uh, self-deprecatingly. I I know you are, but I'm (laughs) I'm
0: refusing to let it be (laughs) self-deprecating. All right. Okay. listen again and share this conversation with Michael McCarthy through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you
1: by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about joy in nature as elemental to human flourishing and to our civilizational defense of the natural world. These are themes of the naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy and his wondrous book, The Moth Snowstorm. The title of the book is The Moth Snowstorm. and Yeah, that needs a bit of explaining. Yeah, yeah, I want you to tell that story, but I think the context also of so much of this and, you know, what we're discussing here, like the the abundance of spring that you and I knew in our childhoods. Um, it's also this irony of the baby boomer generation of abundance, right? As you say, this is the yeah. generation that, every, you know, supposedly we all everybody yeah. did better than their parents. Yeah. But that at the same time, the defining characteristic of the natural world of this century that the baby boomers brought into being is no longer beauty. Um, it's It's not abundance. And, you know, one thing you talk about is we are very focused on you know, rare and charismatic wildlife and extinctions, but you talk about the great thinning.
1: Yeah, well, that's 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 really uh, it's with regard to the United Kingdom. Really, it's fairly special, but I'll, I'll try and briefly explain it. Well,
0: oh, but but there's also this new. Study out of Germany about I mean it's it's insects uh, uh, right I mean and it I mean it's had the
1: Krefeld the Krefeld Entomological Society that is sensational
0: yeah and I mean you say the windshield phenomenon right that I mean what I it's made me think about how in when I was younger I mean just how there would be bug it was and it wasn't pleasant right I mean bugs smashed on every windshield Um, but that has changed and and you know when I say our generation I also I just also mean all of us alive right now.
1: Well, what in America, for want of another term, is generally referred to as the windshield phenomenon, more and more, the fact that 30 or 40 years ago, if you went on a long journey, especially at night in the summer, Mm. uh, your car windshield could be covered in bugs, and so could your headlights, and you might have to stop, and you might actually have to clean the windscreen, as we would say, to to carry on. My own term for that, which I came up with myself, is the moth snowstorm, Mm. because 30 or 40 years ago in in the UK, maybe 50 years ago certainly, if you drove down a country lane on a muggy summer's night, there would be so many moths in the air. And as you drove faster and faster, in the car headlight beams, they would start to seem like snowflakes. And it would, and in some occasions, they would almost seem like a blizzard. There would seem to be... There was a snowstorm of moths. And this was only made visible by the invention of the automobile. We've only known about it for 100 years because... <laughs> if, if, <laughs> we even if you smash them out, with something. <laughs> yeah, well, even if you yeah. went out at night uh-huh. on a summer's evening, you wouldn't really see that. But in, in automobile headlights... Mm-hmm. We could see that. And the whole point about the phenomenon of what you guys might refer to as the, uh, the wind chill phenomenon, mm-hmm. what I'm referring to in England as the moth snowstorm, the whole point about it is that it has gone. It has vanished. It does not exist as a phenomenon anymore. You cannot now drive down a country lane in the countryside in England, on a muggy summer's night, and see what you could see in terms of the abundance of flying insects fifty years ago. That phenomenon has disappeared, and I use that as a symbol of well, I you know, you said that the, the word I use for British wildlife is mm-hmm. the great thinning that has taken place, and the point is we would all be shouting and screaming about this if it was extinctions because extinction is the metric that we all instinctively use right. to, to right. recognize wildlife decline right. you know you've got the endangered and species left
0: actually.
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and if something goes extinct it's on the front pages yeah. and if something's about to go extinct we bend over backwards to try and save it but in in England on, on on in the British countryside it was more subtle than that it wasn't a disappearance of species it was a disappearance of numbers mm-hmm. it was the the fact that of just, well, year after year yeah. after year, there was simply less of everything. Partly because we were pouring pesticides all over the land, yeah. and once you do that. Once you have pesticides, there aren't only going to be no more pests, but there aren't going to be there aren't going to be any Sorry. more insects right. of right. of any other type. And, right. and, and as you know, insects are at the at the, the bottom of food chains. And, and you instance yourself five minutes ago, this amazing study from Germany last October, which yeah. has gone around the world, yeah. by this little society, which showed that in sixty three nature reserves the abundance of flying insects since the fall of the Berlin Wall had gone down by 76%.
0: In nature reserves, that's the astonishing thing about that.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So what's it done in the wider countryside? What's it done outside nature reserves? So Germany's lost three quarters of its flying insects. Um, I wonder if
0: you would tell us, I mean, there's so many factors, obviously, but there's a story you tell about the decline of the sparrow.
1: Yeah, the house sparrow, in in London in particular.
0: Yeah. Um, And
1: I've got American birder friends, and uh, I uh say, our sparrows have gone, and they say, well, you can have ours.
0: Yeah, (laughs) there you go.
1: (laughs) Especially especially in New York. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, it's very strange. I mean, on on my newspaper, which was The Independent, which is uh, um, online now, but it used to be a a broadsheet newspaper, but we started in the year 2000, we started to highlight the fact that the house sparrow had basically disappeared from central London. And 20 years earlier, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of house sparrows. You'd go in St. James's Park near Buckingham Palace and there'd be guys who'd be selling you a, a little bag of seed and you'd get 50 sparrows on your arm. And over the course of about 20 years, they all disappeared. And the thing was that even to this day, nearly 20 years after we first started to highlight it, no one really knows why it happened. Uh, so it's... um. It's a great ecological mystery,
0: and and I think you know the larger point that you're making in all of this is like, as you say, we don't track all of this. We don't track most of it. It's just it's almost something that you notice in its absence, that abundance that was there. And but you had this interesting conversation with Max Nicholson, an ornithologist.
1: Yeah, he was the he was the uh, granddaddy of them all. He was uh-huh. the. Uh, He was the founding father of nature conservation after the Second World War. He was a government administrator, but he he was also um, a very senior biologist. And and, and he had a particular interest in the decline of the house sparrow because when he was a young man, he and his brother in 1925, I think it was November the 1st, had counted all the sparrows in Kensington Gardens in London, (laughs) which is an extension of St James's Park. Right. And the number they came up with was 2,603. And 75 years later, I went with him to the day to Kensington Gardens to try to count sparrows with members of the London Natural History Society and the number they came up with was eight. And when I went to see him, he had a peculiar theory of his own, which was that as they started to decline, he thought that there might come a point where... (laughs) The colony sort of committed suicide. And this phenomenon has a scientific name. It's called the Ali effect after an American biologist from the 1930s called Verde Ali, which is... And the the theory is that declines in socially breeding species become self-reinforcing. As as they start to thin, there'll come a point where they just break up. And he thought that might have been what was happening because sparrows are colonial. They nest in colonies. And Mm. he said... He couldn't prove it, but he said then, you know, a lot of things that happen in the world can't be proved, but they're still real.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of come back to this larger framing of this and, you know, the way we discuss things like this, when it becomes a debate, uh, when it becomes about problems – and to solve, or whether they need solving. And, you know, I could imagine somebody could say, well, we can live without house sparrows. Obviously, London has gone on without house sparrows. Um, I think your argument is that if we should lose nature, that we become less than whole, that we be less than we evolved to be. You even say that we would find true peace impossible.
1: Yeah, that's what I personally think. I mean, uh, many people... I'm sure wouldn't share that view, uh, perhaps because I I wouldn't want to be patronising to people who don't share that view, but you might say that because they don't see a lot of nature and they haven't seen what nature can do for human beings. But I personally think that the natural world is where we evolved. It's where our minds evolved. It's where we became who we truly are and it's where really we are most at home. I mean, even if, think about it, even if you're a multimillionaire, right, and you go on your expensive holidays, yeah. you like the sunset, don't you? You say, darling, come and see the sunset. It's phenomenal. That That even when you are, as it were, <laughs> insulated by wealth or whatever from nature itself, moments still happen when nature impresses itself upon you greatly i think with many people it doesn't happen because that age-old connection with the natural world which i believe we have and which is empirically real not just a philosophical construct but actually real it's covered over isn't it it's not only covered over by 500 generations of civilization but it's covered over by the frenzy of modern life my contention is not that We all love nature, but my contention certainly is uh, that we are all capable of loving nature because in us, at the very deepest level, at the bottom of our psyches, we have a link to the natural world which really goes to the essence of who we are.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy. There's an emergence of literature about pub- uh, of public health about contact with the natural world. Oh, oh abs- right? absolutely. And, and and human well-being. There's a huge yeah. literature on it. Yeah. yeah. And the I mean other, especially
1: in, in America as well.
0: Especially in, yeah and, and another thing I was looking at just cuz I've been working with this idea recently there's a, there's this whole new science of awe and how awe is this kind of defining human experience that actually has Consequences. A- 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 the consequences, awe, A-W-E, yeah, A-W-E, that actually, and these are, these are scientists who are studying this, and they're not religious people, but, you know, that, that this human experience of awe, more than other emotions, actually leads people to cooperate and share resources and sacrifice for others, so it, that, that there's a link between awe and altruism. But what's interesting to me, because I, I knew I was going to talk to you, is that when they give the examples of how humans experience awe, just about all of them are experiences of being in the natural world right just about every single one of them and I mean, it's just well, right
1: you, you go on go on yeah I mean, no i, I that's just, interesting. yeah
0: yeah so i i and so that i'm aware of that and you know also what i just think is provocative in your thought you say that humanism in fact our legacy of humanism is actually part of the problem that we've had this vision of our own goodness and that our morality is anthropocentric and that that actually complicates things at a moment like this.
1: Well, I uh, gave my own naming to it. I, I said the philosophy by which we in the West have certainly uh, lived our lives since the end of the Second World War. I think mm-hmm. I said, I think you could term liberal secular humanism. Mm-hmm. And I said that this was a, a, a creed which had a single and honourable aim, which was everywhere to advance human welfare. It wants everyone to be free from hunger and fear and disease and live happy and fulfilled lives as far as possible. But that there was a gap at its core, which Mm -hmm. is it does not recognise that humans are not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. And are there any limits on what we can do or what we should do? No, not at all. But, But yet there are. And so we are not able in this belief system properly to face up to what we are actually doing to the world by development and everything else, which is that we are destroying our own home. And the philosophical system by which we at the moment live, which does not recognize that as human beings, we have a tendency to do very bad things. And because of that, we are not able to confront that tendency.
0: I have seen you using the word redemption. As right as, uh, yeah, and well,
1: that's the, that's the old Christian in me, that's
0: the old Catholic in you. Um, but you know, also, I I think, uh, with echoes of our potential to be destructive, but that I mean, and what is spring about, right? Spring is this narrative of birth, deaths, and resurrection. Uh, it's not coincidental that that's when Easter happens. Um, whether anybody's going to church or not, that's the narrative. And I I do see you, I feel like that is your hope that redemption is possible for us in this relationship with the natural world, as you say, our home.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think there's hope. Sometimes I think there isn't any hope. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's the condition of being human to think that. Um, But certainly, uh, to me, the, the greatest aspect of Christianity is redemption. In our society, we all celebrate Christmas, don't we, or or we did. And we didn't really give two thoughts to Easter, but the great ceremony of Christianity really is Easter. And it's the fact that there is, even for the greatest sinners, there is forgiveness, which is an extraordinary concept, really. Mm. Um, Whether or not there is forgiveness uh, for humankind as they continue to march across the face of the earth, trashing it left, right and centre... I do not know.
0: Hmm. You um you end your book on love, a new kind of love, which is interwoven with a story about your mother, your relationship with your mother, but also you're actually injecting that word also into an imagination about what our new relationship with uh, the natural world might be. Is that would you? Is that right? Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean. Many of us can have uh, a love of nature. Many, many, many people have the love of nature. And I just take the view that if people not only loved it in a simplistic way, which is fine, I've got nothing against that, I'd do it myself. But if it, it could also be loved in an informed way, I think that that could be a very powerful force if it it was a love a love of nature that realized what nature means to us that realized just how essential it is to our spirits to our souls to our very beings and that realized that at a time when it's being destroyed all over the world were that able to be harnessed in some way it could be a very powerful force because uh, even one person who feels like that is good I, I mean even a single love like that i say has real worth but thousands of loves like that have real power mm-hmm. since uh, ordinary people's feelings are the beginnings of political will
0: yeah odo was you know f- fierce you're talking about, and that's why also the the conjunction of that with your mother you know this the fierce love um, would you tell the story about how I mean, we spoke in the beginning about your love of nature. Actually, began in that very hard time early in your life when she was taken away from you for a while, and and then later was back. Not only in your life, but you know, came back to herself in some ways. And that that story of your mother and how that how that went together for you with the Great British Butterfly Hunt.
1: Well, um, my brother and I. He, my brother John was a year older than me, and uh, we had an experience that must be common to many people. Uh, my mother had a mental breakdown when I was seven and my, my brother John was eight. And um, she went away to a mental hospital, which in those days you didn't often come back from, but yeah. she did come yeah. back. And um, she had sort of recovered and she was damaged in on the surface, but she, she wasn't damaged in her core as, alas many people are who who undergo Mm. mental trauma. And gradually, as I went into my adolescence and my my teens and my adulthood, um, I came to love her very, very much. And um, I I rebuilt my relationship with her. But it all came uh, crashing down in 1982 when I was 35, because my mother died at the age of 68. And I found then, to my absolute amazement, uh, that I could not mourn her. And that just as I felt nothing, When she went away in 1954 when I was seven, now when she went away forever, I couldn't feel anything either. And I did not know how to react to this. It was, you know, to have your grief taken away from you is a very, very strange situation. And I came to understand what had happened. And the fact was that when my mother had gone away uh, when I was seven, I had hated her for that. I had hated her because she hadn't said farewell to us or anything like that. She'd just gone away and left me, although my psyche did not allow me to admit that. So I yeah. it turned into indifference. And similarly, when she went away forever, when when she died, the same feeling kicked in. I hated her because she had gone away again. I hated my mother because she was dead. And um, these are the sort of uh, tangled bits of your psyche that psychotherapy, which has lots of critics, but sometimes can help you actually sort out. And it did in my case. And so I was greatly um, thrilled to have recovered my feelings for my mother and to understood what happened in my childhood, which had seemed so confused. But I had no way of marking that. I didn't have a way of commemorating this really big thing in my life. I mean, we we like meaning-making, don't we? That's why we have ceremonies. We have ceremonies yeah. for christening. Most yeah. of all, we have ceremonies for marriage and we have ceremonies for funerals. We don't let people be buried or cremated just like that. We we want to have some sort of solemnity, some sort of meaning-making. But I had, I did not have one. And, but eventually, uh, I came across one, which is when I took my children to see my mother's grave we were standing by the grave and um, what I thought was a dead leaf came blowing al- along the wind this was on a March day and it fell on my mother's grave and it was actually a peacock butterfly when it opened its wings and that just set in me the idea of uh, a memorial to, to my mother <laughs> uh, and the memorial was to go and see every single British butterfly species over the course of the summer and there are 58 of them and to dedicate every one of them to her. And because I was the environment editor of a major national newspaper, I suggested that as a summer feature for the paper. You were able paper. to get and
0: a lot of people involved in that with you.
1: <laughs> well, we, su- we suggested yeah. That yeah. readers might like to do this and there would be a prize for it. We called it, as you mentioned, The Great British Butterfly Hunt. And it was very successful and it was great fun and all the rest of it. But what it was about for me was... Um, giving my mother uh, something to recognize w- what a magnificent person she had been, and what I gave her was all the butterflies of my country.
0: <laughs> you do, of course, realize how that the metaphor there, like the illusion of like of that love for your mother and like where we come from, and that how we can't feel our grief at the loss of of our insects and our birds and our blossoms. It's I don't know it's I I hear it now more having you tell the story than I did um, yeah than I did when I read it even
1: yeah I hadn't I think instinctively but I didn't make the explicit connection yeah. I mean I I'll, I'll make it now that you say it
0: yeah I spoke once with a um, a Buddhist teacher Joanna Macy I don't know if you're familiar with her she's been she like was in, involved in environmentalism before the word mm-hmm. was coined and she talks about also our fierce love for the world and that you know when we you know, when someone you love is sick, you know, is in the hospital, is ailing, is dying, you don't, you you go sit with them, and you right, and you you don't say, "Well, I'm busy," you know. But but with our with the world that we love, with our insects and our birds and our blossoms, um, it's so overwhelming. We turn away, and yet I think you're making that connection too. That what is that bond? You say that bond we have with the natural world. If we could take that seriously, that could keep us also attending and then healing, participating. In. Um, if I asked you to start uh, this vast question, what does it mean to be human um, as you've lived your life and the things you've cared about, the observations you've made, how would you begin to speak about how your understanding of that has evolved, what it means to be human?
1: Well, the, the single gracious thing in our lives is the love for another person. That's what I think. Uh, whoever we are and whoever the other person is but, but human love um, is transcendent it, it, uh, I think it's the single greatest experience we can have and um, I rejoice when anyone has it mm. and finds it and um, you know, if I could wave a wand <laughs> the thing I would do is let every individual find the love of another individual I think that's what I would do but in terms of the context in which we've been talking clearly uh, we humans come from somewhere and where we came from, where we emerged from, is the natural world. And for 50,000 generations, we were wildlife, right? Uh, well We don't think we are anymore, and probably we're not, but we were just another species. I think, it, for myself, I cannot see our identity as humans as separate from the natural world from which we emerged. And what I think is that, in the end, our spirits uh, have an urge, they have a longing still to be part of it and I think this longing can be surprise you it can suddenly leap out in certain circumstances you can suddenly realize you're surprised by the strength of your feelings Mm. but I do feel that to be fully human is to recognize that the natural world is where we came from and it remains part of us and without it being fully human is something we cannot do
0: Michael McCarthy was longtime environment editor of The Independent and environment correspondent for The Times. He now contributes articles to The Guardian. His books include Say Goodbye to the Cuckoo and The Moth Snowstorm, Nature and Joy. Onbeing is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenyvesi, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Erin Colosaco, Kristen Lynn,
1: Prophet Idowu, and Jeffrey Basoy.
0: Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating, and the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American public media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
1: On being is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.